Okay, so welcome to another episode of the Cam Marketing Save the Planet podcast. And today, Gemma and I are delighted to be joined by Yanis Ioannou, who is the Associate Professor of Strategy and Entrepreneurship at London Business School. Yanis, welcome to the podcast. Hello, and thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Fantastic. So first things first, can you just give us a brief introduction to the work that you do at London Business School and uh, and what that kind of looks like? Absolutely. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. So I've, I've been at the London Business School for about 13 years now. And uh, all of my work, all of my research is about understanding how is it that companies integrate environmental and social challenges into the way they do business? What are the implications of doing so? For instance, how does that change their strategy? How does that change their profitability and so on? And, and more specifically, I have a, a particular interest in understanding the intersection of companies and capital markets. For instance, investors, the asset management industry more broadly. So research is a big chunk of, uh, of what I do in this space. But of course, uh, research is not enough. We have to also disseminate the knowledge. So I do a lot of uh, uh, teaching across all of our degree programs, including executive education. Um, and I'm personally involved in with uh, working with companies and asset managers to better understand, better implement all of these strategies. So all of these uh, sustainability strategies. So it's a multifaceted, if you like, engagement, but essentially with the same underlying issue, which is the integration of sustainability or ESG, however you want to call it, into corporate practices. Okay, so we're going to talk ESG today. And also, and it's interesting to hear you say sustainability or ESG, however you want to call it, as if that is interchangeable. Is that how you perceive sustainability driven into an organization is it's it's deployed their sustainability strategy is deployed through ESG is that is that kind of a positioning right so i mean the, the naming issue is a very important one and and what we need to keep in mind is that in in the world of practice there have been many different labels that have been used over the years right corporate social responsibility corporate yeah. citizenship sustainability and so on now there have been a number of terms in the in the academic language as well predominantly corporate social responsibility but personally i am much more interested in the substance rather than the label yeah. so for me sustainability Sustainability means the sustainability of the business within a broader environmental and social context. So when I use the term sustainability, I, of course, care about thriving business in this case, right? Yes. Which is about a business that understands the environmental, the social and the governance challenges. And of course, a business that is also remains profitable and has a positive impact in the world. Yes. Therefore, in that context for me, ESG is a way to measure the, the extent to which a business has integrated those considerations at its core. ESG is is currently utilised, I guess, when you when you when well, when a lot of people, Michelle and I talk to, uh, we talk about ESG. People automatically jump to the ESG report, don't they? Um, and it's something that you find buried on a website, and not many people really, really understand it. Really getting into the into the detail, and it's often enforced due to the size, structure, or sector of an organisation. If you spend a lot of time looking at an ESG model, it's it's quite a rigorous strategic process, isn't it, that um, has the opportunity to drive some serious change and impact, positive impact through an organisation if, if it's utilised properly. So I guess a question for you, Yanis, is 
you know, what organizations do you, do you see out there who are utilizing ESG in a positive way to drive positive impact in a more sustainable future? And then I guess a more prickly question is, what organizations or industries are using ESG in a way that's not necessarily weighted towards a more sustainable future, but for other reasons, they may be driving up their ESG or making it more, I guess, visible. So there's m- many questions embedded yeah, in that. Absolutely. So let me try to, uh, to to tackle some of them. So first, um, as I always like to say, uh, ESG is not a reporting challenge. ESG is a strategic challenge. And ESG is just short for uh, capturing all the changes that are happening in a company's ecosystem. What do we mean by that? Uh, Governments are regulating more on environmental and social issues. Employees and especially younger generations are demanding more from companies as employers in terms of the impact they have on the world. Social movements and activists are knocking on, on corporate doors, asking for more accountability and transparency. A company's own investors demand more understanding of the risks introduced by environmental and social challenges. Yep. So across, uh, and then of course, customers, right? We know that uh, uh, companies are faced with increased demands and expectations regarding more environmentally and socially responsible products and services. So the ESG integration challenge is fundamentally a strategic challenge. Of course, it has an important reporting component. But what we need to understand is companies themselves are experimenting, profoundly experimenting with these practices. And you know why? Because for decades, companies thought that these are issues that the government is is going to solve. Someone else is going to. It's not the business issue. Now they're becoming core business issues. And by the way, look, in the past when, you know, we had a new technology, when digital came on the horizon, we said, oh my God, this is a disruption. That's just one technology. Now, I just described to you that if you're a business, every single one of your stakeholders is changing their demands uh, and expectations. So this is a major disruption, which which, which leads me to to, to the the, the other parts of your question, where which is about, you know, how do we look at sustainability or how do we look at ESG in terms of opportunities and costs? So here's how I would frame it. It's, there's two aspects, and we need to be very clear. If we accept that indeed ESG is a disruption, it's not going to be a rosy, easy path going forward. Disruptions leave behind casualties, yep. right? The corporate graveyard is packed with once iconic brands that failed to navigate disruptions because they were too complacent, because they failed to act quickly, because they didn't really understand the extent of the challenge. So within ESG, I think it's important to understand that there's two components. First of all, as I always say, there is a global cost correction embedded in ESG. In other words, it's time to pay the bill. Whether we talk about carbon emissions, methane emissions, uh, malpractices in your supply chain, human rights violations, all of those um, uh, uh, negative externalities are becoming socially unacceptable and, and, and the world is being demanding more accountability. So at the very least, companies need to understand that they need to make investments now to be best prepared for a world in which those costs become cost of doing business. By the way, that is exactly why you see so many companies use 
internal carbon pricing. Why do they do that? Well, because there is a very valid expectation that very soon we're going to put a price on carbon and and there's going to be arguably a tax on carbon, as there should be. That is only half of the story, though. The other half of the story is to understand that precisely because of these changing demands, expectations, preferences, we also see uh, uh, new opportunities coming about. Think about electric vehicles, for instance. Think about the plant-based diet. And we have already seen disruptors entering in very traditional industries. Think about Tesla and automobiles. Think about Oatly and the milk industry. Think about Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat into the traditional beef industry, right? So we are going to see more of those disruptors exactly because we, we need those groundbreaking innovations. So from a corporate point of view, especially for large incumbent companies, there is a challenge to adapt to these environmental and social challenges and communicate how you adapt. So that's where the reporting component comes in. And the second part of the challenge is to compete with all of these new entrants, to compete with all of these new technologies, to compete with startups that are essentially born sustainable, born ESG. They don't have the, 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 the inflexibility that sometimes existing organizations have. So I think that's, precisely how uh, different companies look at this challenge. And, and we can discuss more about this, but as you can imagine, it's, it's, it's a journey. Some of them are yeah. in the early stages, some of them are much more advanced, but it is a staged process. And sometimes companies have to go through those stages to build momentum and realize that change at the corporate level. Absolutely. And and it's interesting, you know, you mentioned digital there, and we often refer to sustainable transformation. You know, this is this is what you're, you know, a little bit like just digital transformation. This is way bigger, though, as you've cited, because this this encompasses a it's more urgent and important. I would we, we would all poss- agree, but it is also more all encompassing of every single aspect across the value chain of that organization. And as you say, all the stakeholders that are absolutely critical, those employees, those investors, those uh, customers, uh, partners, communities, and let's not forget the planet as as a key stakeholder critically. And so, and it's interesting that you talk about, you know, the organizations have to compete. I think, yes, they do, because there are these startups coming in, these disruptors. But what about collaboration? I mean, it's a big, it's a big area that, you know, is being focused on at COP27. It's, a, it's an area Gemma and I are focusing on with all of our podcast guests about this idea of collaboration. And of course, you've got these disruptors, like you say, these social impact businesses that from the get-go have been driven with you know, they probably don't define it as ESG, but they define it as social impact, sustainability, purpose-driven, whatever that, you know, looks like for them. Organizations, we've interviewed many of them on the podcast, people like Too Good To Go and Olio, who actually are disruptors utilizing waste, you know, the waste that is being created. It's almost like the opportunity from those, from the waste. How can we actually create a new sharing economy around what is being wasted. So rather than food go to waste, because we know that that's a big problem, how can we actually be solving that problem? And, and what I think is, is good to see, and I'm sure it, it could be part of how 
these organizations develop without having to kind of reinvent the wheel is coming together with those unusual partnerships, Yanis, so that you've got these smaller social impact organizations working with larger organizations who potentially can't turn the tankers as quickly as we need to turn them because we have got such a short time frame that we are talking about. I mean, 2030, you know, we talk about this being the decisive decade. It's already 2022, very close to 2023. So what are your views around not just the competing, but because I, I get that, you know, that's that's a natural area of business. And of course, that's there are these ratings and scales and people want to understand how they compete. But the important critical piece about this is going to take lots of many moving parts working together. Absolutely. So the collaboration is a it's an absolutely critical component. So at the risk of stating the obvious for every everyone that is in this space, these are these problems, the environmental and social issues that we're facing, they're not only corporate problems, they're all not only country problems, they are global problems. Yeah. Big problems. Uh, like climate change, for instance, right? So I absolutely agree with you that um, collaboration is essential. And let me give you a couple of examples why I think that's the case. So clearly, uh, when companies decide to integrate environmental and social or ESG issues into the way they do business, they face trade-offs, very, very important trade-offs, right? Whether it's about the time horizon, the cost, the price, and so on and so forth. Um, But clearly, there are problems, sorry, there are trade-offs that all companies in a a given industry are facing, and there's trade-offs that no one single company alone can solve. For example, think about palm oil, for instance. No company, no matter how large it is, is going to solve the palm oil issue. Same with broader deforestation issues, right? So collaboration has a very important role to play in terms of enabling companies to collectively address these issues. Now, this is particularly important for trade-offs for which companies cannot immediately innovate. There might be trade-offs that cannot be resolved with with the current technologies. And and that innovation is going to take time and resources, right? And therefore, collaboration is very essential. and what, what's also important to keep in mind there, and, I, and I, I'm actually, I welcome and I follow this conversation, is the legal aspect. There's a lot of discussion of whether collaboration on ESG issues may be looked at through an antitrust antitrust lens. And this is a very kind of a, a, a lively discussion in mm. the US, especially now with the upcoming elections. Yeah. Um, and because I do think that a number of, let's call them anti-ESG uh, groups are going to use the antitrust regulation in order to attack these kinds of collaborations. And therefore, that also signals that um, there might be barriers to that kind of collaboration, in this case, legal barriers that need to be urgently addressed so that companies across industries or within industries can actually collaborate in order to achieve those collective outcomes. The second uh, thing I want to mention about collaboration is that, um, as you rightly pointed out, it enables for joining up of skills and expertise and capabilities that, for example, in the past might have not been possible. So, for instance, in the U.S., we have a very successful model of collaboration between a company and an NGO, and that's Dow Chemicals with the Nature Conservancy, for instance. In 2021, they celebrated a 10 year collaboration, very specific environmental projects that they were able to make a lot of progress. (laughs) I think that in addition to the environmental domain, collaborations are critically important 
in the social domain. And that's because we have many social, many social purpose organizations, many yeah. charities, many NGOs, many social enterprises that in my view have much more deeper, detailed and historical understanding of social issues, social injustices, poverty, for instance, discrimination, racial, racial discrimination, LGBTQ plus issues, and so on and so forth, that truth of the matter is Corporates don't have or don't have sufficient knowledge of yet. Or if you hear any corporate these days, they say, oh, we know we, we want to celebrate diversity and we want to contribute to diversity and so on and so forth. So it is those kinds of collaborations that are absolutely critical. Um, exactly because, I mean, where did we start this, right? We started that this is a disruption because companies do lack the skills, the knowledge and the experience that they require. But there are other types of organizations that do have a lot of this skills knowledge that is required. So uh, collaborations, I think, is, are absolutely critical. And that NGO and corporate relationship over the last five years has kind of switched from NGOs just partnering with large corporates because they fund them to actually, as you talk about, this trust issue, you know, on the ground locally in the countries and regions that they operate, they have the trust of the people there and they can feed back, you know, whilst you probably look at some of those partnerships and wonder why they're working together, actually they, they need each other. And I think it's a much higher value exchange, isn't it, that works both ways now between those partners. But in terms of, you know, you talk about trust, um, those, sometimes those, I think one of the things that keeps coming up, and this is what a lot of those activist groups talk about and use as a way to try and drive, I guess, questions around how, how sort of valid ESG is, is there are some organisations within those ESG ratings that rate quite highly, aren't they? But they're organisations from industries that don't necessarily have uh, very good sustainability credentials. So I guess in one rating list, British Tobacco were listed uh, in the top three rated ESG performers. How do, just for our listeners, those organisations get such a high rating? And you know, how does that sit in line with, I guess, their sustainability credentials? Right. This is a very, very complex uh, question because uh, let's not forget that the, the term ESG predominantly comes from an investment point of view. Yeah. And in earlier yeah. days, right, ESG was uh, a risk management tool. In other words, ESG was used in order to understand the risks that a company is facing from environmental and social challenges. It was less about the impact that a company is facing, sorry, is causing yeah. on the world. So in the case of the tobacco industry that you just mentioned, I think under the first scenario, you can say, look, if you are a tobacco company that really takes care of the plantations, really is really environmentally sustainable in the way you source the tobacco uh, uh, plants and so on, and you take care of the, the farmers and so on and so forth, right? Uh, and you increase their quality, you you pay them a living wage, you, you, you source responsibly, and, 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 and therefore you could get a high environmental and social score because essentially, right, um, it's, it was less about the impact that you have on, on the health of individuals. However, now that we start talking about more advanced notions of ESG and that's that are currently dominating the discussion, right? So for instance, um, what is the impact on public health? What is the cost on public health yeah. and so on? 
right? Uh, then, and this is what we call double materiality, or even more advanced notions like dynamic materiality, because you know what's important today may or may not be important tomorrow, but some issues bubble up, right? Think about uh, um, gender equality or or equal pay, for instance. Truth of the matter is that tragically, 15 years ago, we did not collectively care about it as much as we do today. So my, back 15 years might not have been an ESG issue, but now it is. So that's yeah. there's a dynamic aspect to it. So I don't think that anyone has cracked the code in terms of, you know, how, what is the optimal way to weigh, uh, for example, a company that has a positive environmental and a negative social impact. But this is not, I mean, these, these types of trade-offs, they are societal trade-offs that we need to discuss. And the truth of the matter is that different individuals are going to have different views on this, right? And and different, and I mean, yes, there are things that are absolute, right? In my humble opinion. So for example, respect for human rights, for example, right? Um, now, the tobacco industry is a, is a it's a highly controversial one because on the one hand, and these are totally my personal views, I recognize the right of someone to smoke if they so wish to, right? If they have all the facts about how smoking can kill them, that's their choice. There is such a thing as individual responsibility. Yeah. But if you are a tobacco company that is uh, undermining the science that says that smoking causes lung cancer in the same way that, you know, um, oil and gas companies uh, uh, fueled, <laughs> pun intended, uh, <laughs> a climate science denial, then I have yeah. a problem with that, obviously, yeah. right? Um, so that is, I think, the, the, the why we're increasingly seeing, and I think we're going to see even more of this in the asset management industry, the idea that we're going to have to offer products that meet individual investors sort of... Um, um, uh, preferences over these uh, issues. Um, but that's that's encouraging because truth of the matter is that investors have been accounting for these issues. They, ha they have demanded that they have more transparency about these issues. And yeah. this is precisely topics where transparency makes a huge difference, yeah. right? Uh, and, 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 and the underlying science of, this, of these topics. That's why there's so much disparity between uh, ESG ratings and rankings, because at the end of the day, let's not forget, they are, in some ways, opinions. They right? are. They are opinions. So, you know, investment analysts disagree about investment recommendations, even though they look at exactly the same financial data. So we should not take this as the absolute truth about what a firm does, but one of the important inputs, if we were to assess a company on its ESG credentials. Absolutely. And I think that is an important point about the accountability piece and about the metrics and the alignment with how, how you can really truly rank one organization against the other, because it is, it is a little bit ambiguous. And as you say, it, it is, it is very, um, you know, there isn't a structured, there's a structure that you, you can say, oh, this is what you have to report on and this is what it looks like and uh, and this is the transparency that you can share. But it is their interpretation of what that looks like rather than there being a, a kind of body that is, as we have in the financial world, you know, a, a, a finance system that is looking at all of those kind of dotting the I's and crossing the T's. This is far more ambiguous, isn't it, based on 
the, I suppose, the interpretation of what that organisation is is putting across. Do you see there becoming a kind of legislation around this or some kind of rigour to kind of, I suppose, because every organisation, I mean, if you were a B Corporation, you know, there are certain things that you have to do. There are certain things that you are expected to improve upon. You have your rating. You you know, there is this expectation within that network to retain your B Corporation status that you will improve and increase that score. So there is a baseline that then organisations are kind of working with. Do you feel that there's going to be some form of of, of rigour and similar uh, metrics imposed across every organisation. So there is a standard baseline of what those sustainability metrics or those ESG metrics, because they, they can be individually interpreted at the moment. So do you think that that would be a standard line that is going to come into place? I think that we're very fast moving into a world in which non-financial disclosures like ESG are going to be mandated. And I think we have several proposals on the table, right, from different reporting frameworks, reporting guidelines, you know, many of them like SASB from a financial point of view, you know, IFRS is working on some standards, you know, that there used to be the Integrated Reporting Council. Um, There's the, of course, there was the GRI, more recently the TCFD and so on and so forth. And I I welcome all of those uh, uh, proposals on the table exactly because we're trying to capture very complex, fast-moving underlying issues. And, and certainly from an, uh, for, in order to unleash the capital required in order to, to fund this transition at the economy level, clearly we need um, uh, a, you know, compatible, reliable, accurate data. Yeah. However, as I mentioned before, we should also be acutely the, uh, aware of the fact that it's not that companies have address these issues. And now the only problem is, oh, how do we accurately measure their response? We are still going through a process of experimentation. Yeah, they're either not addressing it or they're still experimenting. And then when you're experimenting, there's a lot of trial and error. So in some respects, this ESG ratings and rankings and disclosures are trying to capture a moving target. And the complexity is that different issues are going to be differentially important across industries. It's not like the financial disclosures where, you know, your profit margin is your profit margin, no matter what industry you're in. For example, your carbon emissions are not so important when you're, if you're a consulting company, but they're very important if you're a manufacturing company or oil and gas company, right? So this idea of materiality, but we need to unpack that more in terms of not only what is a material risk for the business, but also the impact that it has on the world. So, uh, and, and I don't think that we are at the point where, first of all, we can, uh, there are some initiatives, but we haven't actually been able to measure those ESG impacts, not inputs impacts, even yeah. at the product level, right? Um, so we shouldn't, in, in a sense, rush to uh, 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 to mandate something. And by the way, it's, 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 it's obvious that this is going to take a long time because think about, you know, there is an initiative that tries, is, is a task force for nature-related disclosures, right? That yeah. tries to mimic what we did for climate change. But, you know, when the European Union started engaging with this idea of social issues, and and trying to come up with the equivalent of a social taxonomy, essentially they gave up on it. 
right? Because the issues are so complex. It's so it's early days. So if we are going to go into a standard, I do think, and that's why you see a number of the standards. What they do is that they start with the environmental aspect, which is in relative terms, easier, perhaps more advanced in terms of the underlying science. And then they try to find their way to those other issues. So the short answer is that in the long term, yes, I see us going to, to non-financial disclosures. Uh, and by the way, a small parenthesis that this is a domain where AI and big data technologies can help us a lot because yeah. these are complex, multidimensional yeah data, sometimes unstructured data that needs to be aggregated. Um, uh, but we have to be careful before we, 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 we take, you know, decisive action on reporting to make sure that we're mandating disclosure on the right things and the things that matter, both from a, a corporate risk point of view, but also from an impact point of view. So I guess a question to you, Anis. Um, who do you see as as the audience for for ESG uh, and and what is contained within within the reports over and above, obviously, you know, the investors? I think that I mean, as I mentioned earlier, the demands and expectations on companies come from pretty much every stakeholder. So ESG can take many forms. For instance, if you are a a consumer-facing company, this means demands for ESG disclosure all the way down to the product level. If you are a company with deep supply chains, ESG means disclosure uh, across your supply chain. And in fact, it means assuming responsibility for your supply chain. That's why we're talking about scope three emissions instead of only scope one and two emissions. Clearly, uh, uh, civil society wants to know what you're doing on environmental and social issues, particularly social movements. So that's also a, a valid audience. Again, as you said, in addition, of course, to the investors. And of course, governments would want to know whether you're complying with, at the very least, with all these environmental social um, uh, uh, laws and regulations that are coming into place. But I do think that the best of companies, though, look at their ESG disclosures as a type of social contract. I think it's an opportunity for companies to tell the world, pretty much the world, why, why are we here? What are we trying to achieve as a business? Why is the world arguably a better place because we are here as opposed yeah. to us not being yeah. here, yeah. right? And it's hard to communicate. It's almost impossible to communicate that in regulated financial disclosures, but your ESG disclosures is your opportunity to do that, right? And basically ex- explain to the world how is it that you're creating value. And I'm not talking about financial value alone, financial and non-financial value. So it's, uh, I, I think that... Uh, and by the way, ESG disclosures are not of one kind. So, for instance, if clearly if you make an SASB disclosure, you're going to tell the what the investors want to know. If you make a GRI-based disclosure, you're going to tell all of your stakeholders. And there's nothing preventing you from doing both. Might be expensive, but again, it sort of depends on the audiences that you're trying to reach. But truth of the matter is, it's hard to identify an audience that wouldn't care about yeah. what you're doing on ESG these days. Hence, this 
complex and continuous demands for more transparency. Absolutely. And I think it's transparency and really great communication because, yeah. because um, you know, that I mean, it's interesting you say that, Gemma and I often talk and to organisations and in part of the teaching that we do with the, the marketers that we're talking to and educating mm-hmm. and raising awareness around these areas. You know, two very powerful questions, particularly about the impact of that organisation is, you know, what what is it that you that you are doing and and giving to the world and the second question is as you said you know would the world be a better place if you didn't exist you know why do you exist and would it be better if you didn't exist and those are really you know complex and deep kind of you know mindful questions for organizations to ponder and also then the accountability of and what are we going to do about it if that is the case you know that is a that is a terrible scenario to be in you know that we've totally lost our way so what can we do and of course ESG as a as a kind of there was in my view when I look at traditional CSR models there's nothing wrong with them either you know ESG has kind of evolved from corporate social responsibility models but the reality is that most organizations aren't using them as operational frameworks and aren't using them as a lens by which everything that they operate through is measured against, which is, as you said, we're in this phase of experimentation and it isn't utopian, you know, and it's going to take time. We do have that challenge, of course, with the time aspects because there are some times around when we need to get to net zero and, you know, I've just been working on carbon literacy pieces, you know, and it's terrifying when you're looking at what is going to happen with temperature changes. And that is going to be catastrophic for many organisations. So there is this sense of, come on, let's, you know, let's all really get to this. But then on that communication piece and on that ESG there is that communications where this can go awry in as much as organizations are talking about intentions, but not necessarily actions. And that's where it can move into this sense of greenwashing and everybody becomes despondent and a little bit, uh, you, you know, mistrustful of, of what is actually being reported as what they are doing. So, so you know, that's where I think this transparency and really great communications and thinking about how things need to be communicated to specific stakeholders. Investors are going to see, want to see one kind of set of information Customers are going to see another set of information. They're not interested necessarily in the numbers. They want to understand the impact. And of course, your employees, for them, they want to know that they're working for an organization that is doing what it says it's doing. And here is the here is the continuous progress. Anything around that communication piece that, that you are uh, seeing where organizations are getting that really right, Yanis? Because yep. we feel there's a big, there's a big kind of missing. Um, pool of exemplars, really, to raise the bar for others. Yeah, I think um, if we look at best practices when it comes to ESG more broadly, in, in, in my experience, I think that the best of companies use the integration of ESG essentially as a catalyst. As a catalyst in order to achieve what exactly? At the very least, they achieve operational excellence. Because let's not forget that a lot yeah. of these, especially the environmental, but also broader sustainability issues, are uh, they do have an important component of optimization. In other words, there's a lot of waste into the system. We are wasteful in terms of how we use energy, how we use water. Yeah. Uh, we are we are not careful in terms of how we get rid of waste. So the first, uh, the ESG integration can be a catalyst for operational excellence. 
Secondly, um, ESG integration can be a catalyst for strategic excellence. And why that's the case? Because if you integrate ESG challenges into the way that you do business, then you future-proof your organization against the background of all these megatrends that we talked about earlier. And the third component, though, is this idea that the integration of ESG can bring about cultural change in the organization, give purpose to the organization. And from the organizational purpose, you can derive meaning at work and therefore motivate your employees and then give them a purpose at work, which allows them to innovate and and, and really be sort of uh, happy and content to work for your own organization. So, um, So now all of these different layers, so the operational, the strategic, and the cultural are important to communicate, right? Both internally as well as externally. So that communication component, I think it's it's critical for two reasons. So first of all, the internal reasons. If you're an organizational leader that's trying to transform an entire organization, it's not just enough to convince people or employees about where you want to go. It's not just enough to tell them what's in it for you. You have to really make them, you know, uh, jump out of bed in the morning Absolutely. and come and work for your organization, yep. right? So the, in that communication, especially in the ESG domain, needs to be authentic. You cannot fake your way towards caring about the world. People can see through that. Oh, yeah. Right? And also, if you don't make that sort of authentic communication, you'll never get the organization to deal with the inevitable risk and fear of change. We know that people fear change usually. In other words, employees need to trust the direction of travel, the speed of travel, and the person who is leading them. And therefore, internal communication is is so important to set the vision, the mission of the organization, and tell the people in the organization, how are we going to get there and why are we doing this? Now, the second component of communication is, of course, the external component. An organization has many external stakeholders that need to lend validity. To the, to the ESG journey, right? Starting with the investors, society at large, government organizations, and society at large. Mm-hmm. So in other words, if you're going to embark on this organizational change and you know that, you know, it's not a linear process, you're going to get things wrong, right? So you, you'll need legitimacy from the outside and you will need sometimes the benefit of the doubt that you are going to get things wrong. Uh, and therefore, communication is important in that respect because that's the foundation of the social contract that you have with these external stakeholders. And unfortunately, in recent years, both in corporate as well as investment, we've seen companies that are trying to exploit that. They think that they can fake their way towards ESG. And that's why we've seen the prominence of of greenwashing, essentially, right, across the board. But I think that... so. There is a, and I'm going to say this with cautiously, but there is a silver lining to greenwashing. And here's the thing. For me, it would be a a worse kind of situation if they did not even care about ESG issues. What greenwashing is telling me is that they understand the pressure and that's why they're trying to cheat their way. So for me, that only confirms that there is pressure to do something. Now, clearly they're making the wrong choice to cheat their way, right? (laughs) 
Um, but society and and actor and, and social actors are realizing that, right? That's why we have, for example, in the UK, we have the CMA having the green, green code green out. Code, we yep. saw yep. even banks recently having their ads uh, uh, banned yeah. because they were misleading. That's we right. see the SEC in the US uh, doing the same thing for investments. We see the European Union doing the same thing for investments. So there is, and and by the way, this is also another domain where AI and big data are extremely useful because you might be able to cheat a person, but it's much easier for a machine to see irregularities in the data, inconsistencies, because it's it's like that saying that says you cannot fool all people all the time. Yeah. Well, now we're saying, we you know, you cannot fool any machine all the time, right? Um, so I think that those kinds of technologies can also help us with uh, finding out greenwashing. However, uh, and again, this goes back to the point about communication, is important to understand that if a company says something or commits to something and fails to deliver, that is not automatic greenwashing. No. Why no. is that the case? Because companies may fail. Yeah. Right. Because we're asking them to build capabilities they did not have before. And and that is exactly why, in my view, it is important for companies to communicate honestly their failures. And you see some of the leading companies, they say, look, we set this target, we're falling behind, but these are the reasons we're falling behind. You know, we put X amount of money in R&D and the innovation just didn't come through. And and, And the world is willing to give you the benefit of the doubt if you tried and failed. It's like pharmaceutical companies to have a blockbuster drug sometimes takes a decade to find a, a, a drug that works. So for a lot of these issues, we need that kind of long-term experimentation and companies need to communicate that, right? So, and and I think we're not yet at the stage where um, as a society, we're being able to fully distinguish. Yes, there are some clear cases of greenwashing. There's some clear cases of fraud, but there are also clear cases of companies that simply failed because they yeah. lacked the capability, they may lack the resources, Yeah. which by the way, brings the bigger policy question, which is that, you know, we are running out of time. As you said, we have this decade, you know, we have these big organizations that even though they fail, they're still sort of engines of change, right? If we were able to push them to become more sustainable, then we can really have a much uh, impact at scale. So we need institutions that is not just the stick, it's also the carrot, in other words, towards more ESG integration. So that's why the short answer is that communication is so important because there's a strong internal component, a strong external component, and it's also the contract is at the interface between a society and, and a company, especially when it comes to some of these cases where a company tries and fails yep. to integrate ESG. And the irony is that's what builds trust, isn't it? And and yes. if, a, if an organization puts themselves out there, it's almost like that vulnerability piece. People can understand that because it seems very, very human. You know, it's forgivable because it's a case of, well, you can see that they're trying, but, you know, we're not always going to get it right in in those first games. So it's it's kind of forgivable because it's that human endeavor because you've connected with the shared values of those that are invested, whether that's employee, uh, customer or investor, you know, in your in your organization. So it's that transparency. I think that's where, you know, a lot of this can, well, communication is where many, many, many things fall down. 
Gemma, we should really think about wrapping this up. I think we could talk to Yanis forever and ever. <laughs> this is we're going to have to get you back on, Yanis. Absolutely, I'll be delighted absolutely. to. Yeah, Yanis, we like to ask all our guests the same quick fire questions to wrap up the podcast. So, my first question to you is: Can marketing save the planet? Yes. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> Not alone, but no. yes. yes. It's yes, part absolutely. of the answer. Yeah, it so is. It so is. We're with you. We don't think it's going to do it on its own, yeah. but collaborating and yeah. working across. Especially marketing as a social contract. That's yeah. how we like to think about yeah. it. Yes. Fantastic. Great. And what do you hope business looks like, Yanis, in 10 years' time? More sustainable, more responsible, and ultimately with a positive social impact. A force for good, if you like. Yeah, an enforced force for good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that too. (laughs) And if you were to give one piece of advice to others around, I guess, getting started with ESG um, and becoming, you know, more responsible, what would it be? On their personal or professional life or? Let's say professional. Professional. Yeah, so I would would say essentially get educated about why is ESG important? What is ESG? What are the prevailing frameworks? What are the prevailing debates? And and always consider what you can do on... Because the problem we have in in ESG is that people think it's always someone else's problem, right? So individuals think it's companies, companies think it's government, governments think it's institutions. So take ownership, learn more, and to the small part that you can play, wherever you might be, whatever profession, role, and so on, do try and play it. Fantastic. So, Yanis, how can people find out more about the work that you are doing? Where can we point them to find out more about you and the work you're doing on ESG and the advice that you're working uh, with organizations in implementing this? Yeah, so a couple of ways. I'm very active on Twitter. So you can find me on uh, on Twitter if you just Google my name at LBS. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn as well. Yep. Um, I have also my personal website, which I keep it updated with all the research that I do. And you can also find my contact details on uh, on the London Business School website. So I do live online. Um, I'm everywhere online. So if yeah. you just Google my name, you'll find many ways to, to, to follow me. Fantastic. And we'll make sure that all those links are in the show notes for everybody to easily be able to reach you. So it just leaves us to say a huge thank you, Yanis. We will continue this conversation. 